If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I think our cognitive geographies, when we read and write, are all land-based. And that's why what I tried to do there was to place us wholly in the seas, in the sea and the ocean, and try and make us think from the sea and the ocean. That's why I turn my maps up different ways and so on, um, uh, ways which I think you might have thought about if, if you were of the sea rather than of the land. That was Barry Cunliffe talking about his new book on the history of the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's episode, we're going to be focusing on humanity's relationship with the sea, in the company of two leading experts in the area. Professor Barry Cunliffe is an archaeologist and author whose new book, On the Ocean, explores how the Atlantic and Mediterranean have shaped human societies since ancient times. Putting the questions to him was Professor David Abulafia, author of a 2011 History of the Mediterranean which was entitled The Great Sea. Barry and David met in Barry's Oxford office a little while back, and here's what they had to say. I'm David Abulafia, and uh, I'm from Cambridge University, where I've been Professor of Mediterranean History, uh, and I've, I'm also a Fellow of Gonvalinkees College. I'm Barry Cunliffe, um, retired Professor of European Archaeology from the University of Oxford, and I'm now an emeritus professor. Your new book, On the Ocean, uh, it actually deals with the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. So 
the first question that came to mind was why on the ocean when you're actually dealing with two rather different types of maritime space? I thought probably this is an allusion back to your classical sources, but uh, what, what led you to that title? Well, well, I originally was going to concentrate, uh, write a book concentrating on the Atlantic um, and looking back into the Mediterranean as, as much as I felt I needed to. And that book was going to be called Exploring the Sea of Perpetual Gloom, which is that wonderful fr- phrase that the Arabs used for the Atlantic. They hated it. Um, and, and, but as the book developed, I, I realised I had to spend much more time with the Mediterranean part and um, get much more deeply into how shipping developed and how the Mediterranean interacted with the Atlantic and vice versa how important the Atlantic was in developments in the Mediterranean. So um, uh, the book evolved, and then I thought, uh, what, what sort of title? Well, On the Ocean is, of course, um, what Pythias, the great Greek explorer, who came from the Mediterranean out into the Atlantic and, and went around Britain in the end of the 4th century BC, what he called his book. So um, I was just pinching his title, really. The book... Uh, reprises certain themes which you've uh, dealt with in earlier books, notably actually the first of this series of very beautifully illustrated books, Facing the Ocean. Could you say a bit about how it differs from uh, particularly Facing the Ocean? Yes. um, In writing Facing the Ocean, I was very concerned with the development of the different societies um, culturally along the Atlantic facade and what effects the the ocean had on the way that society developed. And uh, so it was really um, land-based looking out, as as really the name implied. And uh, this one is is very much more um, the ocean ocean is centre, centre stage. And it's this conflict that humans have with the ocean that I wanted to explore. So the land became much less significant and the nature of connectivity was um, what what really um, developed and and, and made the books um, very different, I think, I hope. Um, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, revise Facing the Ocean and I thought, well, no, leave it as it is because I've covered some of those themes again in a different way and uh, I don't want to go back to that once more. Mm. There's been a great explosion of interest in maritime history in recent years and one of the areas, in fact, which has attracted, I think, more literature even than the Mediterranean is the Atlantic. How do you feel about some of the literature on the history of the Atlantic? Do you think the history of the Atlantic is a coherent subject in itself? Or do you think that really we've got to think much more in terms of the ways in which seas and oceans relate to one another, that compartmentalising these seas has actually distorted our understanding of them? Well, I I certainly think you're right there, that looking at a sea of time is not the way to do it, which was one of the reasons I wanted to really look thoroughly at the Mediterranean as well as the Atlantic and at the interaction of them and indeed the Baltic. They all all sort of work in together there. Um, Looking at the Atlantic as an ocean, um, I think um, for most of the time covered by the book that I'm writing, in fact, virtually virtually all the time, um, the uh, Atlantic was open-ended. There was no other side to it. 
Uh, and that was what motivated people and what conditioned the way they thought and um, how they uh, approached the Atlantic. And it was only right at the end, of course, with um, well, the, the, the Norse, the Vikings, crossing to North America and then three or four hundred years later, Columbus crossing in the middle bit, uh, that the Atlantic becomes closed. So I was interested in it um, as... Um, a big challenge and people facing it as a challenge or, or regarding it as hostile and not wanting to face the challenge. So I, I was quite curious about who did face it and who didn't face it and what was the motivation, what kind of society did they come from. Um, now, when, when the um, Atlantic becomes enclosed with known land or land known to the Europeans, to me it becomes less interesting um, and the interest then moves on from the uh, links between the Atlantic and the Pacific, for example. So I think you're, you're right. It, it is the interaction of the oceans that is the, f the fascinating thing, rather than the ocean as an entity. Yes, and one of the other features of the Mediterranean as compared to the Atlantic is the Mediterranean as a narrow space, an elongated space, admittedly, but a space linking three continents, linking a great many different civilizations. Whereas what you talk about in this book, if we go back to the Neolithic period or if we go back to the Bronze Age, is actually at times a common culture which stretches all the way from Portugal, who knows, even perhaps beyond that, right up to sometimes the Orkneys or right up to Denmark. Um, this sort of uniformity of Atlantic culture compared to the Mediterranean, do you think that's somehow an expression of what you've just mentioned, the openness of the Atlantic, so that what forms is a distinctive type of culture related to the open ocean? I think if you've got probably two mindsets, haven't you? If, if you are in the Mediterranean, um, you know that there is land all around you and you know there are a couple of little outlets. Um, even from a very early stage, you, you know that from probably the Neolithic period, uh, if not before. Uh, and um, it, it, um, I think that does condition uh, how you um, develop your culture, how you develop your connectivities. So if, if you take the, the Mediterranean, for example, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is a narrow sea. It, it, it can be known very easily, and it was probably known um, to, to sailors most of it, even back in the Neolithic times, even if not before. Um, so there was no sort of real fear or challenge, I think, with the Mediterranean. I regard it as a very tame sea, whereas the Atlantic is all challenge, unless you're just coasting. Uh, you are challenged by it. You um, build up models of what is out there. Um, and I shall never forget um, Aristosthenes in the 3rd century BC saying, or he's been quoted by someone else as saying, but um, he actually said in, in a book that he wrote that if you start on the coast of Spain and you sail uh, along the latitude due west, you will eventually come to China, Japan. You will come to the end of Asia. Um, now, that was um, third century BC. They, he knew the world was round, of course, as, as they did long before that. Um, so um, there was the challenge. He was setting up the challenge. And much more to the point, he, I think he, he actually, uh, Strabo then says, um, those who set out to do that 
and returned to tell the story, said that the ocean yes. was endless. Yes. And so, on. so those who set out to do it, yes. it says, suggests to me that people were facing that challenge and were uh, sailing out to find out what is there. And that's a very different mindset to, to that of the contained sea. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, as far as the Mediterranean and the Atlantic are concerned, they're very different types of space in another sense, aren't they? That the uh, physical conditions actually sailing the Atlantic out in the open ocean, you're dealing with high seas, which of course do occur in the Mediterranean, uh, terrible stormy weather at uh, wintertime and so on. But it's there's always the chance of finding some sort of refuge. It, it's a very different sort of experience. So how do you how do you think that that moulds the relationship between the two seas? It's actually difficult to uh, navigate the same sort of ship in the Mediterranean as in the Atlantic. Yes. Um, uh, the, the Atlantic, certainly you need to understand the winds and the currents, as I suppose you do in, in the Mediterranean yes, as well. Yes. Uh, but the winds and currents were extremely favourable to movement in the Mediterranean, weren't yes. they? You could come along the north, um, from west to east along the North African coast uh, very, very comfortably and, and, and so on. Um, uh, whereas um, in the Atlantic, um, unless you explored, you didn't know where you were going to be taken ever. Um, and I think Himilco, who was one of the Phoenician uh, explorers in about the 5th century, um, I think uh, it, it said that he sailed out into the Atlantic. Now, that, that's the first case I think we have of anyone who was trying to push the boundaries, was trying to explore it. Whereas um, um, Hanno, his contemporary, sailed along the African coast. He wanted to um, see if he could get round um, uh, South uh, Africa, in fact. Um, but um, so I think you've, in the Atlantic, you've got the two attitudes all the time. Those who are stay, saying stay safe in, in the coastal waters and uh, trying, to, um, trying to explore south or, or north, as the case may be. And the those who were prepared to to explore, and I think this this goes back to something that um, I I think motivates humanity. It, it, it is this desire to acquire and uh, to acquire things and to acquire knowledge, and I think it's that that sets us very much apart from the other an animals. Mm. Um, this this acquisition and. Um, it, 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 acquisition of either things or knowledge was power uh, and was given status and, and in, in most societies. So um, I think these people were, who were facing the challenge of the Atlantic um, were driven by this desire to acquire and really to acquire knowledge. Um, when you get to people like Columbus, of course, it was to acquire gold and slaves and all the rest of it uh, to pay off the, the king of um, Spain. But from the early stages, I think there, there is this, this real challenge there. And uh, after all, people sail around the Atlantic on a, on a shoehorn or something now, don't they? Um, um, you know, the, the, the challenge is still there. We still like it. One of the things that strikes me quite forcibly is if you look, for instance, at the Portuguese or the Spaniards in the 15th and 16th centuries, the risks that they take 
in the early days, Columbus, whom you just mentioned, um, the risks he took in hurricanes in the Caribbean, because, of course, he didn't know about the hurricane season at all. Uh, and then what you find, within about 20 years, the number of ships crossing the Caribbean, crossing the Atlantic rises to something like sort of 50, 100 a year, absolutely phenomenal expansion of trade across this sea once they actually know the routes. So this takes one back to that question of the pioneers themselves. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Pythias is a good case of this. You talk in the book, at the beginning and the end, you talk about the sort of genetic disposition mm. of some mm. people mm. Uh, to, you have this lovely word, far-faring. Mm. Um, how seriously are you making that case? Well, um, <laughs> I, I must confess, I haven't followed it up, but there there is a, a literature um, that says that you can um, define um, genes that, that predicate the desire to to, to to take risk, to explore. And it's um, across the world, it's something like 10 or 20% of the population have them. Now, um, this is in some quite reputable popular science, but I've not followed it up to the, the real, you know, the base literature. So um, th this is, I, th I think, um, uh, something quite interesting that, that there, there might be, in fact, um, a, a disposition um, to move, to travel, to take risk. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, one of the mysteries that um, seems to me to arise when one looks at the maritime history of the whole world is, on the one hand, we have the Polynesians going out and colonising almost every island in this absolutely massive maritime space. And then we have, in the Atlantic, this very slow process of colonisation, which really only gets underway, apart from the Canaries, in the 15th century with the Portuguese. But associated with this, there are all those legends which go way back in time so that some of the recent research that's been done on the Norse sagas suggests that the Norse accounts of reaching what we now know to be Newfoundland, and this is verifiable archaeologically, as well as being based on real events, no doubt about that, but at the same time, these Icelanders were reading classical texts which they had received by way of Norway because basically in the middle of the winter in Iceland there's not much else to do apart from read books late in the evening Um, and the evening actually begins very early because there's not much sun. So I'm thinking here about the relationship between the mythical islands out in the Atlantic and the process of discovering the Atlantic. How important do you think these mythical conceptions of what's out there are in driving people to explore, getting this gene going, as it were? Well, I I think, of course, it goes right back to the the period of the Greeks, um, believing that out there the Hesperides... Out in the Atlantic, the the um, land of milk and honey, two har- harvests a year, where all the the hit souls of the, the worthy and the heroes go. You know this this idea of this paradise out out there in the sea. And I think that that was a very powerful one, a powerful idea um, for for the the Greeks and the Romans. I think they still had some concept of islands out there, land out there, which was exceptional. And I think that's the nature of those stories, isn't it, of the, the islands in the Atlantic, that they, they have this, this mythical, exceptional sort of character, um, the, the islands of the Seven Saints and, and, and so on. The island I particularly like is High Brazil, yeah. uh, which um, was supposed to be what uh, uh, off the Irish coast, it's due west of Ireland, High Brazil, and it featured on map after map after map after map. And um, I think it wasn't taken off Admiralty charts until something like 1890. Um, and there is a wonderful description by um, Westrup, who was an antiquary, an Irish antiquary. And this is a description published in the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy, which um, says that he was out there on a boat with his family and he saw this island and he describes it as two hills and rising smoke and so on. And I, I think he must have just been on the Paddy's whiskey the whole time, you know, but... but this is the 20th century that he was describing it. So the, 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 these stories die hard. Yes, <laughs> um, and pa- perhaps we need them. 
perhaps, perhaps we, we need that idea of something still. And they were also connected with ideas of uh, the afterlife, of a world yes. beyond. Yes. So the fortunate islands, which move around, sometimes the Canaries, um, that these are places to which the souls of the departed will, will go eventually um, and live in bliss, or maybe in the case of Tenerife with its volcano, the opposite of bliss, maybe they'll <laughs> burn internal yes. fire. But one can see how this, this idea sort of develops in, in the Greek world because you've got the idea really of the, the, the real world which you live in and then above and below is liminal space and those liminal spaces meet yes. uh, out west and liminal is dangerous and exciting and, and, and so on. So it all fits into that general sort of philosophy of the world. So we've been talking about it in an Atlantic context and you rather said that the Mediterranean doesn't fit into that pattern. But of course, if we go back to Homer and Hesiod, I mean, some of Homer's locations, all right, one could argue whether they're in the Western Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and all sorts of arguments available there. But don't you think that the Odyssey also acts as a sort of foundation text for these ideas? Yes. And, and, but mainly within the Mediterranean itself. Yes, although now um, I have several books on my bookshelf, people who say Homer was visiting, uh, it, it all started in Scandinavia. And these are quite serious modern scholars are arguing that the whole, whole of the Homeric e uh, um, epics can be explained in, in terms of Scandinavian place names and goodness knows what. So it's still uh, sort of drawing us, you know, it, 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 it's still grabbing our minds and taking them to the, the limits of, of, of scientific uh, respectability, yes. Yes. I think. yes. I mean, from uh, from this world of imagination to sort of hard world of trade and, and reality, it seems to me that when one talks about um, maritime trade in prehistoric or medieval times, there's always that problem of trying to identify which goods have really been carried by, let's say, a single individual, let's say a Phoenician merchant or a Venetian merchant, for that matter, who travels from um, the Levant out through the Straits and eventually reaches somewhere in northern Europe, perhaps. Um, and the much more frequent sort of type of movement of goods, where we see goods being passed hand-to-hand, -hand, uh, sometimes over an extremely long period of time. Uh, and this comes to mind very much, actually, what you talk about when you write about Sardinia, which crops up occasionally, uh, for its links to the east, to Cyprus, which was another source of copper, of course, um, and then also to the west, to Huelva, and Huelva, which lies beyond the Straits of Gibraltar in southern Spain near the Portuguese border, and then even beyond that. If one's talking about some of these early networks, I put the work in inverted commas, should one really be thinking of them as networks or is this more a casual sort of peddler trade which leads into another little sort of cycle of peddler trade and so on and so forth. Yeah, it, it, absolutely the, the, the key question, I think, and it's, it's very difficult sometimes to approach that archaeologically. Um, the, the example you give of the Bronze Age, the late Bronze Age trade in the Mediterranean, where uh, a place like um, Sardinia for, is, is a great sort of hub in some ways, um, or it's peripheral. 
Yes. Um, now, uh, it might just be a, a peripheral place to the eastern trading network, the um, Mycenaean trading network, and a peripheral place to the western trading yes. network. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, when is a hub a periphery? I think that's the, yes. the sort of question. It's very, very dif difficult to tell that. But I think what, what follows is very interesting, isn't it? Um, the breakdown of the Mycenaean world, uh, the rise of the Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians are from very early on, now we know it's 10th century, um, are going the whole length of the Mediterranean. Yes. So th th they know about all that suddenly. Um, and um, even if there were lots of interlocking networks in the late Bronze Age, certainly by the time, within a couple of hundred years, it, it's one, one Phoenician network, well, it's other networks in between, but the Phoenicians have got a network of their own then, and it is Phoenician ships that are going from uh, the coast of Lebanon um, right out to Welba, um, and uh, most recent discoveries there, I think, are 10th century. And so this is you know, constantly changing our views. My, my guess is what you've got is uh, these um, uh, down-the-line networks, so th things taken from A to B, and then there are people going from B to C and other people going from C to D. So it's, it's short-term um, movements of material until certain times when all these networks or some of these networks join up and, and someone uses them all and makes these great journeys as, as the Phoenicians did. Yes, the Phoenicians, of course, are particularly exciting in this context because certainly the way I would see it is that this is the first time we can really talk about the Mediterranean as an integrated space. And as you say, even beyond the Mediterranean. What's interesting here also, if you compare it to the late medieval situation, I think one of the things which is valuable about your book is this willingness to go into the Middle Ages and to show that some of these phenomena, some of these characteristics persist right through a very long period of time. But if you go into the 14th, 15th centuries, by which time the Genoese and others were navigating through the Straits of Gibraltar all the way to uh, England, but very often uh, this, this system would sort of break down and it would resolve itself into fragments. So you'd have Cantabrians, Basques and so on, Mallorcans, taking goods a certain part of the way and then they would be transferred onto other people's ships and go another part of the way and so on and so forth. Um, so we shouldn't think of it as a simple process of integration but a process where there are constant sort of ups and downs yes. where yeah. uh, something is achieved which is <laughs> then lost. Yes, yes, abs absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, th I think another thing that comes out of this is the the frequency. Um, were, were these some of these one-off journeys? If you think of the um, Dark Age trade from Western France, um, Loire Valley, that sort of area, uh, up into the Irish Sea area in the sixth, seventh centuries, um, uh, a lot of pottery is brought. But um, there has been this nice argument, was it two shiploads or was it lots of ships over a long period of time? It's very difficult to say that. But there's one example I particularly like, which is the colonisation of, of Cyprus, um, it, the Neolithic colonisation of Cyprus, where um, 
the mouse gave it all away because um, they were, uh, as you know, taking animals, um, taking their domesticated animals and their crops on ships from presumably the Turkish mainland uh, across to Cyprus and setting up these farming communities. And so the big question that one would ask, was it a, a one-off colonisation and then they just got on with it? Um, but no, the geneticists say, if you look at the mice, um, the mice haven't evolved. Now, a, a mouse in isolation because of the breeding cycle, um, it goes through genetic um, um, uh, mutations very, very fast um, and, and evolves very quickly, whereas the rest of animals don't because their breeding cycle is slower. Um, and what they were able to show that the mice didn't evolve, uh, which meant that the mice population was constantly being topped up with new ships coming in. Now, that, that's a lovely piece of evidence that um, uh, informs us uh, about the, the nature of those networks that we could never get from other archaeological evidence. Yeah, um, one issue that maritime historians have occasionally grappled with is the whole concept of control of the sea by a political power, how it is actually possible to do so, or possibly one should say how it's impossible to do so, <laughs> uh, because once you're out of sight, once you're over the horizon, it's uh, difficult to know that you're actually there. And this raises the question of piracy. On the one hand, we hear that uh, the Romans managed to extinguish piracy in the Mediterranean from Pompey's time onwards. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there are certainly periods, uh, for instance, in the early Middle Ages, well, one only has to think of Vikings in the north, but also in the Western Mediterranean, Arab piracy as a scourge right through, really, into uh, early modern times. So um, to what extent is it really possible for the political authorities on the shores of the Mediterranean or based in the major Mediterranean islands to exercise a political control over the sea beyond the, the shores of the lands they rule over? Oh, that's a very, very difficult one. Um, I couldn't... Um cop out of it by saying there's very little archaeological evidence. Uh, but um, a, a colleague of mine has been uh, discussing the channel, the English channel in those terms, in, in a rather interesting way. In the um, early Bronze Age, he looks at the English channel, both sides of the English channel, and sees all sorts of similarities in culture, um, and in particular sort of cult objects and so on. And he's coined the phrase uh, uh, maritory instead of a territory. A maritory. A maritory. Yes. In fact, that the sea uh, is is the in the ownership. Of, of these people. Now, it's a very interesting uh, concept to work with. You know, do the people in the Bronze Age on either side of the sea regard the sea as their area and more so than the land? And I think that would get some way towards answering your, or approaching your question, yes. wouldn't it? If, if you believe that um, uh, you, you and your, uh, all the people around a particular sea have ownership of that sea, um, then you would tend to, to work together more and combine more uh, than if you uh, were opposing each other. And I wonder how much of that... Um, we, we've got, after all, Phoenician spheres of influence and Greek spheres of influence, haven't we? Um, uh, when you go back in time, I think it must have been a, a lot less organised and a lot uh, more casual. And uh, uh, some of these um, relationships might have developed across seas for a while uh, and then broken apart again. I think it was very fragile, um, 
situation. The, the English Channel is certainly an interesting case. Uh, there's some work being done actually by somebody in Cambridge, a medieval historian who's looking at the Anglo-Norman Channel. And of course, when you think about that, given that the kings of England were Dukes of Normandy and at various points also controlled more than half of France, mm-hmm. um, it really makes sense to try to not just to look at the relationship between the two land masses, but actually to think of the function of that maritime space in between, which was constantly being crisscrossed and the sharing, the cultural sharing that takes place. Another example might be the North Sea, where you have the influence in the Middle Ages of Norwegian sculptors and architects on English sculpture and architecture, which is something that tends to be underplayed. But the relationship to Bergen was, of course, a very close one. It was an economic one uh, based on fishing and, and cloth trade and so on and so forth. Um, so the sea in this case, in many of these cases, could be a, the very strong link between people, peoples on either side of it, um, creating um, almost a political solidarity which supported the land base places. And then there's, yes, and associated with that, there's the question of the sort of sea of faith. So the idea that following the Islamic conquests, certain parts of the Mediterranean, uh, the islands, we think of Mallorca falling under, eventually, actually it took quite a long time for Mallorca to fall into the hands of the Muslims, Sicily falling into the hands of the Muslims, Crete briefly into the hands of the Muslims. So actually gaining control of the key line of access from the Western Mediterranean right through to the Levant, that that adds up to a sort of, not quite a strategic plan, but it sort of falls out very nicely for the Islamic empires, uh, first of all. And then you could compare that with the Baltic and the North Sea in the age of the Hanseatic merchants, who were hand-in-hand with these northern crusaders who were waging wars for the conquest of pagan territory in what are now the Baltic states. Mm -hmm. So, So this question of sort of religious impulses in controlling, in creating empires, controlling the sea, I think is something... Uh, really rather important. Yes, yes, and indeed the, the Crusades themselves, the, the, the sea bit of the Crusades, the foundation of Aigues-Mortes, for, for example, yes. so the French could take take a good part in the Crusades. And, and in fact, um, uh, some of the um, Christian ships um, also taking Muslim uh, worshippers to the East Mediterranean yes. oh, as yes, well. Absolutely. So no uh, problem about no, that. No, yes, no. that you'd have on board a ship bound for Acre in what's now Israel. You'd have um, going out from uh, the Western Mediterranean. You'd have Christian pilgrims and Muslim pilgrims and Jewish pilgrims side by side, and they learned to get on with one yes. another, <laughs> uh, despite the wars that they were fighting against one another. Um, now that's certainly an important dimension to uh, to what's going. Going on. Um, what about shipbuilding? Uh, that's really one of the biggest industries in 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 uh, ancient and medieval times. I mean, apart from building cathedrals and things and palaces and things like that, there's nothing really on that scale. Um, the enormous uh, the enormous investment that's involved in that, bearing in mind also the number of ships that did eventually um, sink beneath the waves. Um, how important do you think that is in sort of organising society, in, in making these economies really sort of function effectively? I think what it does is... is um to make quite a quite a divide, and I've, I've been trying to think more about this. 
I've been um, think, trying to think about um, how wide the maritime zone in any on any landmass is. Uh, in other words, um, shipbuilding and the supply of ships. Um, how much uh, did that affect the hinterlands, and how much of the hinterlands, uh, and how much um, do we have a, really a maritime uh, zone that is quite different from the the land-based hinterland? And I, I came upon this actually. I, I live part of the time on on the north coast of Brittany, and uh, right on the coast. And there's no doubt the little hamlet I live in is regarded as very different from the Borg, which is five five kilometres inland. And they are we are the people of the sea, and they are the people of the land. And and that, that that's now. But um, I think that must have been very important in the past. That um, the the industries, the, the whole economy of the coastal zone, is is focused on acquiring the materials, acquiring the timber, all the skills, acquiring the the um, flax and so on for the sales. Um, uh, the, the, the supply networks must have been very, very considerable and give, give great stability uh, to these coastal zones and, and also to, to distinguish them from, from other zones. Um, and I you know the tentacles will go back, but, but um, and, and this again, I think, uh, helps to create a sense of a, a maritime identity uh, across the seas. But um, yes, the shipbuilding techniques, they, um, they, I suppose one could say that they were, they were the drivers, weren't they, of, of um, technology for quite a long time. Um, the, the use of, um, it was really the use of timber, how, how you uh, dealt with timber in, in terms of joints, which, which was a, a fantastic study. It can go on for a very long time on oh, that. But and then different types of wood. Different types of wood. Yes, what wood you very, use for which bits. Very, complex. Yes. yes. Where you got so your tar from, for example, yes. Um, yes. for caulking. Yes. Um, and, and the iron nails, the use of the... When iron suddenly becomes reasonably yes. common and cheap, yes. um, uh, that really takes over for jointing. Um, but why some communities uh, really stayed with sewing and, and not nailing? And uh, all, all those questions, I think, fascinating. Particularly the sail. Um, you know, we know of sails early on in, in the... Um, uh, Nile, uh, because of um, going up the Nile, <laughs> needed a sail, um, and uh, the, the spread of a sail in the Mediterranean is reasonably well known. But then you've got the whole question of was it independently developed uh, in the Atlantic zone? Yes, and yes. if so, how far back? You know, yes. the earliest we know is first century BC, and that could have been learned from Phoenicians in the Atlantic. So you, you can't be sure. But but there are some people now who are arguing the late Bronze Age boats, like the one found in Dover. Which oh, yes. is a, a very yeah. fine boat, as, as you know. Um, that um, that that had um, fittings which could have taken a temporary mast, and they've actually reconstructed it with a mast and a sail, and it works. Yes. So, but um, you know how uh, that doesn't prove that that sails go back to the Bronze Age in the Atlantic. But Though it's not such a complex no, it invention. Isn't. It I isn't. mean, it isn't. what's complex is really knowing how to manipulate yes. it, and then you get different answers to that. I mean, Chinese junks and Polynesian vessels and so on do it all very differently to, to European ones. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you're right, actually, about the, the need to think about the populations that lived around the shores 
differently from those who lived even a little bit inland. And one of my own complaints about some of those great works that have been written about maritime history in recent years, going back to Fernand Braudel and mm. his mm. Mediterranean world, is that there's an extremely fuzzy line between what's maritime and what is actually not much to do with the sea at all. Uh, and uh, one of the things which I think we do need to do is keep asking ourselves the question, how can we actually write the history of the sea when it accounts for 70% of the maritime surface of the globe? <laughs> uh, though I should point out, people don't realise this, the Mediterranean is only 0.8%. Oh. Oh. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. Um, and then, of course, you have to say, but the importance of the Mediterranean is absolutely out of proportion to its physical size. Um, it seems to me that some of the literature perhaps underplays the importance of maritime trade. There's a tendency, looking at the ancient medieval worlds, to emphasise so much the risks of travelling by sea and to underestimate the risks of travelling by land, where, after all, there were at least as many bandits as there were pirates out at sea. There were at least as many local sort of barons trying to exact customs from you as there were out on the water. Uh, and if we actually look at the evidence from much further afield, from the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, where we have junks, shipwrecks of junks carrying up to a million pieces of porcelain in the early Middle Ages, I think we begin to understand that all this talk in that part of the world of the importance of the Silk Road, it's as nothing compared to the importance of maritime trade. So do you think that would also apply within the Mediterranean and the Atlantic worlds? I and mean, clearly, some people did have to cross spaces. You have to cross water to get from Sicily to Tunisia. But generally, trying to assess the relative importance, if someone were travelling from with goods from southern Spain to southern France um, or, or from the top of the Adriatic down to sort of Albania and Greece... The sea routes, really, surely that's the viable, that's the way of doing it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure that um, uh, a lot of people in the past, by given the choice, would have chosen the sea uh, as opposed to the land for sheer safety reasons and, and for efficiency reasons. It's much more efficient. You can carry larger bulks by sea than you, than you can by land. Um, you need notionally, I think, fewer people to carry things by sea than by land. So economically, it is cheaper. Um, but I, I, we can even go back, I think, leaving aside for a moment the carrying of goods, go back to the earliest Neolithic in the Mediterranean, um, the colonisation of the Mediterranean by, by um, farmers. Um, and one can see um, it, it's using the sea routes, and it, we call it um, enclave colonisation, where, where people start in, say, um, the, the Balkan Peninsula and hop across to Italy and then down to the islands and then up the coast, uh, west coast of um, Italy, uh, along the coast of France, down the coast of Spain, out through um, Pillars of Hercules, uh, Gibraltar, out uh, in, onto the... Um, Atlantic coast of, of Portugal um, and, and that was done remarkably quickly in about 500 years that whole area was colonised all by the sea, all by people um, taking their animals their, their domesticated animals their, their livestock for breeding and to taking a breeding stock it's a lot of animals uh, as well as a breeding population uh, and all the crops um, it was the quickest way 
to, to move, and, and they wanted to move as, as well. And they did it very, very fast indeed. So how do you think the book On the Ocean changes our view of the early history of both the Mediterranean and the Atlantic? What I tried to do um, is to... Um, in that book, give us um, a different cognitive geography. I think our cognitive geographies, when we read and write, are all land-based. Uh, and that's why um, what I, I, I tried to do there was to place us wholly in the seas, in the sea and the ocean, and make us think from, try and make us think from the sea and the ocean. That's why I turn my maps up different ways and so on, um, uh, ways which I think you might have thought about um, uh, if, if you were of the sea rather than of the land. So um, uh, the simple answer is I, I just want the book to make people realise that the sea is vitally important and give it, give it the time that it deserves. That was Barry Cunliffe in conversation with David Abulafia. On the Ocean... The Mediterranean and the Atlantic from Prehistory to AD 1500 is available now in the UK and the US, published by OUP. Meanwhile, David Abulafia's book, The Great Sea, is also available now, published by Penguin. And you can read a written version of this article in issue 8 of BBC World Histories, which is now on sale. Look out for it in all good news agents, or find out more at historyextra.com. Well, that's about all for today, but please do listen on Monday when we'll be talking about interrogation techniques in the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.